This is Circumcessions, and you are very welcome to another episode of this podcast. My name is Fardot O'Kelly, and today we're thrilled to be joined by Professor Tim Terry. Tim is a senior consultant urologist who is an associate professor of health sciences at the University of Leicester. He is also an emeritus professor of Nottingham Trent University. He it was the trustee and secretary and also a gold medal recipient of the British Association of Urological Surgeons, as well as being a chairman of the section of andrology. He has over 90 scientific papers and was also the Specialist Advisory Committee Chair for Urology. Now, over the last number of years, he has changed tax slightly and is now a professional mentor. Uh, you can find his website on www.mentoringmedics.co.uk and I'll put some notes at the, the show notes at the end as well. He's completed master's modules in mentoring and advanced communication and he's been the lead mentor for the British Association of Urological Surgeons where he's run an annual program since 2013. And as a special treat today we are going to be joined by Professor Marty Coyle who's going to be my co-host as we tackle this important topic. So, uh, Marty and Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this evening. It's a pleasure to have you both on. Now, you, Tim, I see here you have a a vast repertoire of clinical research and you've published extensively in peds urology uh, with our co-host Marty Coyle here, Pat Malone, Pierre Morricant, uh, with, with a number of others as well, before moving into kind of more specialist andrology and female urology and, and recon and but it seems to be that you know underlying all this, you've you've always seemed to have enjoyed reconstruction. And I guess the first question, and we kind of ask it to everyone, is is, is really what was your own pathway into urology? Well, as a gen- general surgeon first, I always wanted to be a hepatobiliary surgeon, and my my master's thesis was on acute necrotizing pancreatitis, which which took two years of my my life really. But then I then I moved into urology and renal transplantation for four years, and, and then got appointed as a consult uh, urological surgeon in Leicester in about 1990. Uh, I had a brother over in Denver, and as a byproduct of that, I met up with Marty at the Sick Kids Hospital, and I was amazed at how much uh, reconstruction he was doing for children with neuropathic bladders. Um, and I had some clinics and some clinical operating work back in Leicester. And he came back with me on, <clears throat> on one occasion. And we did some surgery on these kids with neuropathic bladder, which was early stuff, really, in the UK. And then as a consequence of that, he came over once a year. We had a nephro-urology meeting. Uh, other specialists came over from Chicago and also uh, Los Angeles. And um, it, it really did um, bring forward reconstructive surgery for neuropathic bladder in the UK. Um, and it, over the years, it morphed into the British Association of Pediatric Urology. So um, it was a significant uh, uh, icebreaker for reconstructive surgery and neuropathic bladders in, in, in the UK. So that all came out of networking with Marty and uh, Denver. Tim, I think it was also interesting when we look at it that uh, the average age of um, uh, reconstruction for neuropaths, when we looked at it at that time in the UK, was post-puberty. And yeah. we, we introduced reconstruction into 
school-age children, um, five, six, seven-year-olds uh, in the Midlands. So I think it was the first in the area for us to do it. The other thing that I think was very revolutionary when you talk about networking is not only did I bring in colleagues like Rick Rank and Tony Caldemon, Rick Hurwitz, who joined me, but we also brought in our European friends. So this is before the ESPU actually became a big player. Oh, was it? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, so the, the ESPU was starting to be a major meeting, but um, Tony Manzoni came over a couple of times, Philip Ransley, Pat Duffy, uh, all the big UK people at, at that time from Manchester, um, uh, from Leeds, where all came to this nephro-urology meeting, which, as Tim said, morphed ultimately into the postgraduate course that is now part of the BAPU meeting. Was it all always held in Cambridge? Uh, no, it was held in Leicester. Ah, okay. So it, there were 10 meetings in Leicester. And not only did the GOS surgeons come up, but the older Hay surgeons came down as well. So older Hay and GOS were the main two pediatric surgical units at that time. And, and uh, uh, Manchester was also yeah. uh, becoming a big player with David Goff, who uh, sadly yeah. uh, left us very prematurely. I got it. Okay. Um, that's amazing. I, I, I never knew that. But I suppose the, the other thing, I, I just kind of changing tack a little bit with this, is I kind of I thought we'd speak a little bit about mentoring here as well uh, and, and, and surgical coaching. And I know we kind of spoke... Uh, off air about this a little bit as well but but uh, Tim you, you might just can you explain to me what's the difference between professional mentoring and surgical coaching okay well you know to me coaching relates to performance improvement and it's usually short term and it's in a very specific skills area so that the coach basically owns the agenda and the process and it's usually the coach uh, gives direct extrinsic feed, feedback in that the coach reports to the coachee as to what's been observed. So, you know, this is teaching trainees to operate. Uh, it's coaching. Um, and that's all it is. It's not mentoring in any shape or form. Marty, so what's your take? Yeah. In, our, in our conversations, I sort of view we go through different aspects of teaching, mentoring, and coaching in our careers, and we don't know we're doing it, to be quite frank with you. So, so we've all been doing it. Um, throughout our, our time, even as, as trainees. And our, the earliest thing we do is to teach one another. Uh, and, and to some degree, that morphs into uh, mentoring because we're a little bit more senior than the juniors or the students. Yeah, I think the two key things, well, the key thing that coaching and mentoring have is that they're both learning relationships, and it's how you learn in those relationships and the, and the, and the techniques you use in those two processes. Uh, but to me, coaching, as I say, is a specific skill set. It fits very nicely into you taking on a, a junior and showing them operations, watching them doing them, giving them feedback, using simulation, all of that. That, to me, is good coaching. Um, I wouldn't use the term... Men well, I wouldn't use the term formal mentoring anywhere near that at all. And, and I sort of look... Uh, perhaps it's different on a, a, our, across the pond, but... I look at mentoring as someone where you or I, as a more senior person with experience, is able to have an impact on someone who is learning and that therefore we impact their learning. Yep. Whereas coaching, we're relying more on that individual to take control 
um, uh, of their expertise and to grow. So if I look at, at the analogy in, in ice hockey, a lot of the coaches in the National Hockey League have never played in the National Hockey League. They've never been an elite surgeon or a player uh, in their uh, uh, situation. But what they're able to do is to look at that individual and make them better at what they do, which I think goes along with the, your idea of yeah. simulation and everything else. Yeah, I, I, you know, that, to me, that's coaching. I think when you talk about um, more senior uh, juniors coming up, as it were, um, I think that's where mentoring does come into it. And I think the difference is you, you're not you're not giving them an agenda. They're giving you their agenda and saying, can you help me with this? Which is coaching, you're saying, this is my agenda and you're going to do it because that's where we need to be. In mentoring, what you're saying, you're, you're allowing the person to say to you, I've got these opportunities, I've got these problems, can you help me with them? And then you get into the formal mentoring. That, that, so that's the way I see it. So does it require, do you think, uh, uh, fundamentally a different type of relationship then between the two? Yeah, I think it does. I think, you know, to, for me, um, I think most people can coach because if you, if you know a process... So you know an operation, you can coach someone through it because you know the steps, you know all the th everything that can go wrong with it, you know how to manage the complications. So you can take someone new and say, this is how we do it, you can watch them, you grade them, up to coping with all of it, uh, and that's fine, that's coaching. But mentoring is different in the sense that you're letting the mentee come to you with issues that they can't sort out themselves. They may be opportunities or threats or, or whatever, or career issues and what you're trying to do is get them to come up with an agenda and a process which you can direct them within it so that they can grow and release uh, you know potential perhaps they didn't realize they had so I, I see it as a much more different uh, type of process and, and a mentor does need to be specifically trained to do it uh, through good listening and observing body language, asking challenging questions, uh, knowing the tricks and trades of um, uh, mentoring someone and steering away from offering solutions, but trying to evolve bespoke solutions from the mentee. So I, that's the way I see it. You brought up a key word, Tim, uh, which has been an, uh, a good listener. Yeah, and, uh, and I, I think that really is a, the responsibility of a mentor is to be an active listener, for lack of a better term. And I think that's the hardest skill to learn, to be quite honest. If we all, if we all say nothing for two minutes, we're all going to get really uncomfortable about it. So, so sometimes, you know, the best mentor is someone who doesn't say anything for five minutes at all, just sits there, because it will all come from the mentee sooner or later. Uh, so that and reading body language, so you, 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 you can put the two together, is, is really, really important. It's funny. It, it almost sounds like, you know, I know I'm breaking this down to something that's quite simplistic, but it, it almost sounds like one is almost like mastering your microenvironment, the other is mastering your, your, your macroenvironment. Um, but let, let's address the elephant in the room here. Why? Why do we need mentoring as surgeons? Surely we're brilliant. We know it all. We can do this. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, I, I think we do know it all, and that's one of the problems, the intrinsic traits of the surgeons, you know, they tend to be perfectionists, uh, can't delegate, 
you know, life becomes surgery or, or surgery becomes their life and everything else falls a bit around them because they're not self-aware. Uh, they don't realise what's really important in their life. Um, so w one of the traits of surgeons is this sort of um, perfectionism um, in, and working in a culture where whatever you throw at me, I will deal with. Uh, does lead to people finding it very difficult, which we, and then we get into resilience and how people cope. Um, so I think you know the main issue these days is resilience, but it's always been there. If you look back in the literature, it's you know the the, the burnout inventories came out in eighty two, and the syndrome was described in nineteen seventy four. Um, and since COVID, it's just gone really bad because it's added more and more stresses to the environment. So I think, yeah, for lots of reasons, the surgeons and their environment both bring problems to the equation. The biggest problem in my book is, is the dysfunctional relationship that surgeons have with the, work, the environment they work in. Um, and they, the surgeons can work on their own problems, but who's going to work on the environment for them? And who is there to support them? And I think that's where you need a mentor. You know, it's funny, uh, Skip Campbell, who was a transplant surgeon, or is a, uh, he's a retired transplant surgeon uh, at the University of Michigan, I think wrote um, uh, in the early uh, turn of the century that we uh, taught people uh, how to operate as surgeons, but not really how to behave as surgeons and how to act. So we, 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 we've... Never ever, even in yours in my days of training, compared to Fardods and some of the younger trainees, we were never ever looked at as individuals. We were told this is our workload, this is what you do. But I, but but I think we had a sense of community. Yeah. Now it, that sense of community, at least what I observe, is lacking. So the peer support that you and I had with one another and, and the community developed was a source of strength. And uh, yes, we were resilient uh, internally, but I, it helped us in coping because we could relate to one another. Yeah. And I think, you know, in 2005, we had what was called modernization of medical careers in the UK, where they got rid of the senior registrar, registrar grades and, and made it into one grade that, and then aligned that to consultant vacancies. And that plus European time working got rid of all of the firm's structure. Um, so people, the team that people were in, which was consultant, senior registrar, registrar, SHO, on a ward with nurses that didn't rotate, that seemed to disappear overnight and people didn't know who to go to. Uh, so there was a lot, a lack of structure. And that was one of the features, I think, which has affected um, resilience, not having people to go to to say, what do I do? Can I talk to you about this? Um, and, and because the, the mentors in the old days was, if you was the SHO, was the registrar, the senior registrar, or the nurse, or, or the consultant, and, and all of that's got morphed. It's funny because I, I, I guess that sense of community was obviously important to get you through and, and help with resilience stuff. But that specific sense of community wasn't that helpful to a lot of people either. I mean, they had a lot of difficulties with it with it as well. So in many ways, I mean, parts of that could have been could have eventually morphed into something like an old boys club or something like that as well. And yeah. you had to be you had to be very careful in that in that way. But we were talking earlier as well, and 
were saying that this has really been the model and the firm has kind of built up over the last, you know, 100, 150 years or so. We've started developing into larger teams. But before that, a lot of people were solo practitioners and that's how they worked. And, mm. and it was funny as well, because before they ever got near a scalpel, they all had they all had uh, training in the liberal arts. Which was essentially humanities, and it was it, what what we would now can take, you know, term human factors. And it's funny that we seem to have gone full circle, and we're going back towards that. So as, as we dismantle the for the, the firm, we've we've now been like, oh, gosh, we we were in trouble. Now we got to rebuild back up the individual again. I don't know if it's the same in the UK, Tim, or the same in Ireland, Bardot. But uh, nowadays, you know, I look at. Uh, people going into medicine, they've had to compete to get into a good university first, mm -hmm. then to compete to get into a medical school. And as, as opposed to Tim, who brought up earlier, he did four years of general surgery before urology. Nowadays, at least in the United States, if you want to be a urologist, you're deciding in your second year of medical school that that's what you want to be. I didn't know what a urologist was in second year medical school, 100%. let alone when I finished medical school. So the reality is, People are, are very funneled into a career choice very, very early on. They don't become a generalist. And I worry uh, long-term, too, about the fact that Tim had general surgical skills that he developed as urological skills, which were primarily the difference was endoscopic training uh, because he had good open skills. Now, the days in North America, we've gone away from the gen general surgery as being the backbone of training. And it's become much more of an endos endoscopic uh, uh, field. So there's a lot of competition, which adds more stress. Again, going back to burnout, Tim, uh, adds more stress to the individual. And the expertise is becoming much more streamlined as time goes on as we subspecialize to. But, but surely that, that, that speaks to the, all the more reason to have stuff like mentorship then, doesn't it? Exactly. That's, hmm. I think, Tim's point. Hmm. So I, I guess, Tim, you know, just curious, I mean, mentorship, obviously formal professional mentorship, I'm just going to go out and limb here and say it wasn't around when you were training, uh, but you must have had some sort of informal mentorship. And, you know, you know what, what, what did that involve? Yeah, I, we, informal mentorship has always been there. I think this was the old firm structure, hmm. which is... Uh, someone who's been through it all can advise you. So they're giving you advice. Uh, they listen to what you're saying. Uh, they'll say to you, well, when I was in this position, I did this, sort of. So they're giving you advice. And that's informal mentoring. And who does that? The first mentor in your life is your mum, by and large. Then it's uh, the rest of your family. Then it's friends. Then it's the colleagues you work with. So at the time when Marty and I trained... The guys above you, you, as you were going around the rotations, they left you move into their job. They gave you advice. So that is advice based on their experience. Mm. And sometimes it works, but a lot of times it doesn't because you are a bespoke person. You are not them. And that's where you have to bring in formal mentoring. Because in formal mentoring, the process, which works through positive psychology and other things, brings out the bespoke solutions for the mentee through a discussion between the mentor and the mentee, um, which changes the perception of the mentee as to what's going on, offers them different 
solutions from which they can choose one that suits them the best rather than being told this is what you do. Now, that may not be the case when, it, when they actually go to sort of make the goals work, but nevertheless, they, they're saying they're coming up with the goal themselves. Um, they'll say of those things what's the most important thing let's try this if that's okay and the mentor will say okay how are you going to do that give us a time plan let's meet in a month's time let's see where you are so there's a big difference between advising and uh, and working through a conversation which will generate a bespoke solution for the mentee marty what, what was your experience of mentorship as you were training so a lot of it was the person above me, yeah. uh, and and yeah, the, there was this respect I think for your senior senior trainee or chief re, chief resident or senior fellow, whatever it was, in whatever environment, and a lot of your growth depended on their generosity, and yeah. their ability their ability to take you through a complex uh, situation allow you to grow. So there was the support of hand holding, uh, to, to some degree, but. With time, it became more autonomy, and I think Fardad, you probably experienced that when you were with me. That my goal was not to tell you what to do or say this is the, the right way. Um, uh, Tim used the word bespoke, and that's exactly what it is. It's to allow you to to grow and to develop. So it's a combination of mentoring and coaching, to be quite frank with you, uh, that hopefully allowed you to develop to some degree. And I don't want to get too extreme here or appear too extreme because if you if you are a mentor, you invariably do coaching as well. And if you are a coach, you invariably do mentoring. I'm just arguing the purest position. Exactly. Uh, so, so as a consultant, I not only uh, coach, but I, I sit down and say to them, what do you really want to do in life? What's important to you? Uh, outside of work, what do you do? What, you know? What are you going to do this weekend? You've got any concerns, any opportunities? What should we talk about? But, you, never... but you know, Tim, I, I think that uh, one thing that we're seeing nowadays as we become, uh, I used the word funneled before, but uh, we, we grow into our sub-sub-specialties. Yeah. Um, in the state of Michigan, um, uh, the, a beautiful uh, publication in the New England Journal a couple of years ago, what they did is every single bariatric case uh, uh, is filmed and monitored and graded by the other people who do the same surgery, which in a way is indirect coaching, but it's an opportunity to improve quality and performance as time goes on. And it's not done, obviously, in a negative way. And, uh, and there's always going to be a bell-shaped curve. The same thing we're seeing in North America with with rarer conditions, for instance, extra B, rather than having a Great Ormond Street or a Manchester, there's only two sites who do it our way, is we're seeing collaboratives. And each one of those collaboratives is done by surgeons from multiple institutions, where again, everything is filmed, monitored, and gone over afterwards. And it allows senior mentorship and coaching as time goes on, but constant evaluation and improvement. It's very interesting you mentioned that, Marty. If you go back to the early 90s, I can't remember of the, the name of, but you'll, you'll know it, uh, the adult urologist who, who basically led open radical prostatectomy and first demonstrated the nerves, the nerve presentation. Had wash. Had wash. Yeah, well, okay. Well, he, he actually wrote a paper on taking uh, videos of him doing it and then reviewing them so he could, uh, so he could improve the technique. That's way back in in 1990, isn't it? 
Which in many ways is what athletes and pilots and stuff would do as well. Um, but but so so let me put it to you. And, and sorry, let me just say I'll, I'll put those citations in the in the podcast notes as well. But let me just put this to you, Tim. I mean, who should the mentees be then? I mean, should they be trainees, fellows, junior consultants like myself, senior consultants? I mean, is there an ideal stage to start mentoring at, or 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 is it just when they feel they need help, or or how does it work? I think it. I think it starts from from the age of about five, actually, until you die. That is my answer to that. Of my um, mentees at the moment, I have one medical student at one end, and I have one very senior consultant at the other end. I have four or five new consultants who have just started up, and that seems to be a key area to offer mentoring and not the advice mentoring but the listening and trying to get them to to come up with their own solutions but uh, a number of uh, uh, surgical trainees uh, and and research fellows as well so across the board is the answer and and you listen to them see what the issues are and then you either coach them or you mentor mentor them uh, depending on what their needs are so I think, you know, it's ridiculous to say I am just a developmental coach, uh, a mentor, you're not. You're you're a coach stroke mentor. You use whatever skills you need to use in the appropriate circumstance. Interesting. So I, I guess, let, you know, if I may, let's take this on towards this logical conclusion then. We've mentioned it already, burnout and associated issues. And there have been uh, obviously an explosion of papers uh, on on the entity of burnout. And you mentioned uh, the Maslach burnout inventory. Uh, you mentioned the uh, Freudenbacher uh, publications from the from nineteen seventy four. And some of these actually recently have cite have cited mentorship as a protective factor against burnout. What what do you think the link is there? I think it's the the, the link is. Um being able to talk talk therapy, whether you call it uh, CBT or ACT or mentoring, is someone who's listening to someone who's got a problem, uh, and they uh, and and the mere fact that they're talking helps them deal with their emotions, and it may get them to look in things in a different light. So, if you want a reference here, it's Suzanne David in her book Emotional Agility where she talks about self-awareness, she talks about mindfulness, she talks about standing back and looking at your emotions and understanding them before you react to the stimulus and developing that space between the stimulus and your reaction. So over time you become controlled in how you give the message rather than just a, a straightforward limbic response which gets us into trouble. So very key book to read. I would recommend that for anybody who wants to understand self-awareness, emotional agility, because through that, and combined with some daily small reflective practice, you can spot when you are up against pressure, and you can do something about it early by either talking to your mates in formal mentoring, or seeing a mentor, or trying some act, or doing some CBT, or the whole gambit, whatever works. Uh, uh, Marty, uh, you know, I, I I read your paper. It's only out about a, a month or two now in the in the CUAJ, which again I'll put in the in the podcast podcast notes. But you spoke about this idea of second victim burnout and mentoring. Just give me the gist of that if you can. 
So we have multiple stressors, obviously, that impact burnout, and, and Tim brought up a few of them. But, you know, you look at the EMR, you look at things that uh, our nursing colleagues used to do or whatever that, that now fall on our shoulders uh, and the degree of work. But there are some unique stressors to healthcare that people in the business world or um, a trash collector don't experience, one being second victim syndrome where a serious uh, adverse effect takes place. And not only is the patient who is the first victim injured, but you perhaps as a caregiver or even an observer of that situation uh, suffer something close to PTSD. And the question is, uh, how far does resilience go in that situation? And we've learned that yes, resilience is important, but this is where peer support becomes uh, important. And, and the, the relationship between peer support and mentoring and coaching is really that commonality of being a good listener. So a good peer supporter doesn't have to be the same profession as you, doesn't have to be a, a surgeon or urologist or whatever, but it's someone who's an active listener and participant who knows also the right resources if it looks like you're kicking the can and progressing towards burnout or if you're already burned out because the reality is not only might there be further injury to yourself, but to other patients has been shown that the potential for uh, further adverse effects has increased in individuals who have become second victims. And the same is now occurring as Tim brought up with COVID. COVID has brought up the whole new issue, which has been around for a while, but is again, just like burnout as it has reached a, a pivotal point has been moral distress and moral injury where we're now because of COVID having to decide, oh my God, I can't operate on this patient this week because the resources aren't there. And you feel terrible. You internalize that and you internalize so much of this. And again, these are, that's not unique to healthcare workers because other people are experienced moral distress, but it is certainly very rel uh a new stressor that also is impacting uh, burnout uh, for, for healthcare workers. Who would have thought that both COVID and burnout were contagious? Exactly. Well, they're, they're both pandemic, aren't they? Indeed, they are. I mean, more than 50% of urologists are burned out uh, to some degree. It doesn't mean they can't function. So, again, that's the importance of resilience in that situation. But I think when these other stressors that require a little bit more than resilience aren't observed or aren't dealt with properly, that there's dire consequences for the individual and for further patients. And I think, I think there's, there's a lot of research that can be done here because we talk about burnout, but what do we really mean? We've got some instruments, if you like, and, and uh, uh, the MBI or the Copenhagen Burnout Inventory are indeed instruments, not necessarily uh, good metrics, as it were, in terms of what's going on. Um, so you get someone who is um, down on two and up on one, and you say they're burnt out. But what does that actually mean in terms of clinical performance? Because there's lots of people who feel shattered, a little bit cynical, not really interested, but perform. They just get on and keep doing it. And we don't have any longitudinal studies of them where they, they've got their scores, but how are they doing? They're not burnt out in the sense they're not performing, or at least not all of them. In fact, probably the majority are still performing, but they may not be performing as well, or they may be performing well enough. We don't have the answers there. 
it's almost like a misnomer, isn't it? It's, it's, it rather than it being is. burnt out, it's more the, the the wounded walking. But um, yeah, I think that's right. And I think there was an article in the Harvard Business Review. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Marty sent it to me about the difference between rest and recovery. Yeah. Uh, and rest is just rest, and recovery is changing your your brain circuits so that you um, you steer clear of the old circuits and come up to new ones, and that seems to regenerate the old circuits. Very simplistic, of course, but 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 the recovery is very important. Take take a break from what you're doing, go and do something completely different. I mean, what's interesting, if you look at the older papers and look at what's being printed at the moment, the people with burnout and in inverted commas, whatever that means, uh, whatever measurements you've got and, and how they're performing clinically, uh, seems to be getting worse. The incidence seems to be just going up. And we're talking 50% of urologists, we're talking 60% of vascular surgeons and of vascular surgeons, females are worse than males. Um, so something's not going going well. COVID for sure has been an add-on, but this was was gradually rising before COVID happens. And I think it's, you know, the workplace both in the UK and certainly in America has changed radically over the last 10 years. And um, I think those are the main stresses. And if we're going to come up with a solution, it's going to be through leadership and management at the workforce level. So that, that's a key point that I think that we need to develop um, uh, not only resilience and the things that are individual, but if physicians aren't trained as leaders, they become, I, I don't like the word victim, so I don't like second victim uh, syndrome as a term, but we do become victimized if, if we don't take uh, um, um, an interventional role and become leaders within the environment, because then we just become part of a business puzzle. Yeah, gentlemen, I think that's a really good, strong, powerful place to leave this. I just want to thank you both very much for coming on the podcast and and uh, giving generously of your time and your your knowledge and expertise. And it's been a pleasure talking to you both, as always. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to meet with you two, as always. So, I wish you well. Have a good evening, as always.